chapter 20, verses 10 through 17. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along as I read aloud from the Word of God. Before beginning that, I would like to um, point out something that we often don't think about, but that has struck me in, in a great deal of my reading in recent months. It strikes me that whenever I read history about warfare, and I am reminded very vividly that we are an army, even as we have sung Onward Christian Soldiers, not a song that is very popular in this day and age. It's not a hymn that even makes it into many of the modern hymn books, because that militarist idea, that idea of fighting, of being soldiers, of being an army, something that's not extremely popular. Nonetheless, we must recognize that battle imagery is found throughout Scripture. Not only did the Israelites fight real battles against real people going into the promised land and also to continue to keep control of the promised land, but the imagery of God's people fighting against the powers of darkness is throughout Scripture. And so as I've read history books, it fascinates me to think of the church, whether our part of the Church of Christ or (coughs) any other local body, to think of that in the context of of armies and battles. And some of you have made a, a great hobby of reading about armies and battles and war. And I think about it and I think how fascinating it, and I've used this as an illustration in recent months reading uh, Stephen Ambrose's book, D-Day, about the invasion of Normandy and all the hundreds of thousands of soldiers and all the logistical work that was necessary to prepare for that. And then throughout the months and months of preparation, then the actual event itself and the courage that was necessary and the help that was needed for the wounded. And you think about these things in the context of the Christian church, and your vision tends to expand, because through something like this, which is, which is a parallel, you gain a sense for the necessity of training, gain a sense for the necessity of planning to combat the forces of evil. And an army cannot stay behind on their own shores. They must attack. For the necessity of logistical planning, for every part of the work that goes into it, and all the different people who do things, from cleaning windows, to playing the piano, to working in the nursery, to helping with the food, and all of these things that go into what we do as a church is a parallel to this very real thing that is warfare that, that, that has gone on in our nation has been involved in and many other nations have been involved in. And so I would just encourage you to think of that and think about the fact that that Christ tells us that if you are a follower of his, that you have spiritual gifts given to you by the Holy Spirit so that you can use them to minister to the church and to have an impact on the world. And so when we have a situation like Dulcie having a child or anything else along those lines, And the church gets together, and they marshal their forces, good military terminology, 
and they stormed the champion. No, no, no. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> but when all of these things are put together, in a way, it, it, it helps us to think of the church of Christ as being in a battle, of being an army that God has knit together through faith in Christ. We have goals. We have we have responsibilities. We have things that we must do. We have ways in which we must work together because not any one of us can do all of the jobs, <clears throat> but everyone must participate. So think about that as we've just finished seeing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. That is indeed what the forces of Christ are doing. <clears throat> and as Christ said to his disciples, the gates of hell will not prevail against, and I'm paraphrasing here, the army that comes in the name and in the power of Christ. Think of these things. Our passage again for this morning, John chapter, well, let's see here. I have a little bit of a discrepancy. It's obviously John chapter 20, because we're reading about Mary the Magdalene. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 17. And hear the word of the Lord, beginning with verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary, and this is Mary of Magdala, of the place Magdala, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we give thanks for this wonderful news that is found in your word about your first appearance following your resurrection from the dead. We give thanks that you made many people witnesses of the fact of your resurrection. And we give thanks for the compassion demonstrated towards Mary as she wept because of her loss. And we pray that we would understand your word and understand what you are speaking to each one of us as individuals as we examine your word together this morning. I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word, because your word alone is holy and just and true. <clears throat> having the power through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit to transform our lives so that we are in conformity with Jesus, who is the Christ, the risen Savior. In his name we pray, amen. People look everywhere for satisfaction, for contentment, for peace and happiness. And all too frequently fail to find it. Can these things, satisfaction, contentment, peace, Happiness, can they be found in wealth? In order to answer this question, all we have to do is look at those who are wealthy. Certainly, they are able to buy many things. 
But as the Beatles lyrics declare, you can't buy me love. Many expect to find satisfaction, contentment, peace, and happiness in family relationships. Husband, wife, perhaps children. Only too often to find their hopes dashed by expectations, for instance, which their children don't fulfill. Or to find that their expectation of lifelong happiness with their spouse does not give them the emotional fulfillment that they expected and longed for. Others expect fulfillment in occupation or through success in some area of life and find out much to their disappointment and sorrow that the vagaries of a jealous or hostile boss, a layoff, a market downturn, when everything was running smoothly, a change in the tax or government structure, any or all of these things can swiftly destroy long-held hopes and long-cherished ambitions. Where is satisfaction to be found? Mary the Magdalene had very obviously, based upon this account, at this time, not found it. Or if she had found it previously, she had lost the sense of peace and joy she once had. Indeed, the deep sense of grief that she expressed in this passage is due to just that. She believed previously that she had held contentment, joy, fulfillment within her grasp, only to have it jerked out of her hands with the death of Christ, followed at this point by what we might call adding insult to injury, the disappearance, the loss of his body. The grief she displayed in this account was expressed because she could not find the body of Christ to prepare it for burial. The sorrow at the root of her grief was due to Christ's crucifixion, the deep loss and emptiness that were hers and others because of his departure so suddenly and so violently from among them. Perhaps you have experienced a similar loss of someone who was very precious to you, a family member, perhaps, who has died, a friend with whom you were very close. For a time you knew inconsolable grief such as Mary's, Perhaps your grief was just as real, but due to some other sort of loss, which was nonetheless devastating. When it occurred, you did not know how you would bounce back from the sorrow, or if you could find any measure of happiness in life ever again. Mary's weeping reveals the depths of her sorrow. Her weeping was not the weeping of formal lament, which in these times and in this language was used to show the world that she was sad at the death of Christ. She is weeping in private, as it were, knowing that there are no people around, yet her sorrow is so deep and complete that the presence even of the angels did not shake her or halt or in any way slow down her weeping. In truth, she did not, as you read this account, take much notice of the angels at all as angels. She just answered their question and went on weeping, 
She wept in the language of that day as a child, sobbing and sobbing for her Lord, whom she missed, and for the fears that troubled her in his absence. Last Sunday, as we looked at the passage prior to this in John chapter 20, we saw Mary arrive at the tomb, find it empty, return to tell John and Peter the news, who then ran to the tomb and found what she said was as she had described it. In the process of examining this part of the account, I explored with you the details of Mary the Magdalene's background and how her relationship with Christ came about. As Mark indicates in his gospel, the Lord had cast seven demons out of this Mary. And this fact doubtless had implication for the grief that we see here in this passage. As she referred to him here in our passage as Lord and called him Rabboni, which means teacher, as the passage indicates, we know that through Jesus casting out the demons that dwelt in her, through her following him, she was wholeheartedly devoted to him. And through the miracle she had experienced and those that she had subsequently seen as Christ had healed others, it is highly likely she, along with the disciples, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But that was all before the crucifixion. Now the state that she was in before he cast out the demons that possessed her may have come to her mind again. For her healing, her being in her right mind, sane, full of joy, was due to, to him, to Jesus Christ. Yet, as we read in the previous chapter, he had just died. He had been buried, although she, along with the others of his followers, had expected so much more from him. How could he, the one who had performed so many spectacular miracles, simply die by crucifixion? And that is it. If he had disappointed them in their expectations concerning who he was and what he would accomplish, might it not also be possible that his casting the demons out of her would also prove to be less than she thought. What if the demons possessed her again as Christ was no longer living among them? This may seem a far-fetched thought, but consider the vacuum that was created by the death of Christ, the one whom they considered would be the Messiah. And all of a sudden he was gone, with no culmination, no fulfillment that they could tell, just they believe he's the Messiah, and then gone. Here one day, gone the next. So swiftly, they barely even had time to process the method of his departure. In Luke 11, 24, Christ said the following, And I'm relating this to Mary's situation. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. The clear meaning of this teaching 
was that it wasn't enough for the one rid of demons to have an uninhabited soul. When the demon moved out, that vacancy had to be filled with the right presence. Or when the, demons got, when the demon got tired of going around looking for another place to dwell in, he would return to his original home and take many of his demonic demon friends with him. Prior to the death of Christ, Mary's soul was full of faith and hope, all of it placed in Christ. At this point, though, she could not believe what she had believed about him because... To all appearances, Christ had died without victory. So her soul, which had been filled with faith in him, no longer could hold on to that faith through her disillusionment. And if he whom she had trusted in every respect failed, then what might become of her and her future and her spiritual condition? Paul wrote sometime later a hypothetical comment which reveals very clearly the situation Mary found herself facing. Because at this point, she did not know that Christ had risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Christ says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Skipping to verse 19. If only for this life, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Without the resurrection, Mary may well have found that she had believed in a hopeless cause, a glorious dream that had ended abruptly with a life snuffed out of Christ through his crucifixion. Now consider with me Mary's response to this situation. We've already seen how she was weeping, considered the cause for her sorrow. Now look at her meeting with the two angels inside the tomb. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around. Now, I ask you, what is missing from her response to these angels? If you look at the other Gospels and see how angels appeared to various ones of those who were at the tomb at different times, you will find that in all the other instances there was a specific response. Fear. Fright. From the overwhelming fear of the soldiers who were guarding the tomb when the, stu- when the stone was rolled back, to the reaction of the followers of Christ who went to the tomb. It was unanimous, with the exception of Mary of Magdala. Matthew 28, 4, the guards were so afraid of this angel that appeared, were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Mark 16, 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. Luke 24, verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And yet, Mary of Magdala had no such response. 
a fascinating look at this picture. He seems indeed to have taken little notice at all of the angels other than to answer their question. They have taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. <laughs> and with Mary, the angels asked her a question and went no further. Now, based upon our current obsession with angels in our culture, we have a decidedly false view of what angels are like. Throughout both Old and New Testament, when and where the angels appeared, there was great fear among those who saw them. <clears throat> Consider the appearance <clears throat> of angels <clears throat> to Gideon, to the parents of Samson, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, to the shepherds, and other such examples. If the response does not indicate that the people were frightened, then the message that the angels immediately deliver makes it very clear that even if it's not described as fright, the angels say what? Fear not, or do not be afraid. <laughs> again and again and again. And yet, a simple question for Mary of Magdala. <clears throat> because those to whom the angels appeared were terribly frightened by their appearance. Yet our view today, taken as a whole, as a culture, is that angels are more often than not women, <clears throat> that there is no sense of awesome power and glory surrounding them, and I don't say that there are women to put down women in any respect, just to point out that when they appeared in Scripture, they were not women, when it describes all of these ones that I've read explicitly. Um, and how that uh, relates to the heavenly situation, I don't know. <laughs> but in any culture... The situation with regard to women and men is such that the women are more gentle, more caring. I'm stereotyping here. And the men are more likely to be hard or emphatic or forceful. And yet in our culture, the angels are women, more often than not. <clears throat> if you've seen previews or watched the TV program Touched by an Angel, you know how it is. <coughs> But for Mary, the grief was so overwhelming, <clears throat> not even the presence of the angels in the tomb shook her. They did not frighten her. They did not turn her from her purpose, which was to find the body of Christ. Yet consider the question they asked of Mary. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? It seems at best an unnecessary question. I mean, think of it. <clears throat> Who would sit inside a man's tomb... Remember, again, that when Jesus was placed in the tomb, he was the first person to be placed in this tomb. It was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and it had never before been used. Who would sit inside a man's tomb and ask a woman who came to the tomb, looking in, weeping with a broken heart, why are you crying? <laughs> Seems a very obvious question and answer situation, doesn't it? <laughs> It would be impossible for anyone who was there not to know explicitly why she was crying. <clears throat> for anyone to have taken up residence inside the tomb as the angels had <clears throat> and asked those who came to look inside why they were crying. From a human viewpoint, the answer was obvious. Certainly from the angels' viewpoint, 
There was no doubt in their minds. They knew they had been sent for this purpose, to deliver messages, to be God's messengers to, to people such as Mary. <clears throat> no need to ask the question other than to seek by that question to cause Mary the Magdalene to stop and to consider that if they asked such a question, <clears throat> there was no need to be crying as she was. <clears throat> Perhaps she might have taken another look to see that those men were angels and have begun to wonder at what she was witnessing. <clears throat> now, I remember very vividly, <clears throat> I think in our culture today, there is not a great deal of emphasis on graveyards. There are some people who um, take flowers to their loved ones and honor their loved ones in this way. Many people rarely ever are in a graveyard unless someone is being buried. But I remember well when we were in Columbia getting David and Francis, and uh, Lee and Lynn's home was just a block away from one of the major graveyards in the city. And we could look over the fence to see the graveyard, and oftentimes we'd go up there. During the weekend, they would have about seven florist shops there outside the gates to the graveyard. And the florist shops, of course, were like large carts. And uh, we have beautiful flowers here in the United States. Many of them come from places such as Colombia. In Pasto, they had everything imaginable. <clears throat> People would come, particularly on weekends, and get flowers. They would go in. They would put the flowers at the grave. They would take their machetes to cut the grass around the headstone and do all of these things. One day when Sandy and I had taken a walk, <clears throat> and we had walked under the the archway of an, uh, a 14-foot lantana, which is a plant that grows about this long in our <laughs> country because of the season. Uh, we were sitting on a bench, and we saw a mother and her daughter, both of them adults, come up to a grave, <clears throat> lean over, and knock on the stone. And <clears throat> what they said was, Hola, como esta? Hello, how are you? <clears throat> and Lee and Lynn indicated that this was a common occurrence. The people in Pasta would talk about visiting their relatives every weekend. And they weren't traveling out of Pasta, they were going to the graveyard. <clears throat> and so we see through this situation here with Mary, something that is not perhaps all that common an occurrence with us. The very deep grief of those who have lost someone who is very dear and precious to them and do not know how to respond to it. And she thought the proper response was to prepare his body. But of course his body wasn't there. And she could not figure out why it wasn't there and where it had gone. <clears throat> but as you see in this passage here, you see a message that is very evident it cries out to us. It jumps out at us. There are angels in this passage, angels who have great power. And if you and I were to talk about things that are valuable to us, certainly during the course of the conversation, it might be likely for guardian angels to come up in the conversation. Our thankfulness that God has angels that protect and watch out for and guide <clears throat> Human beings, angels that we don't see. 
And so in our culture, it's very clear and very good that there is a sense that angels have value, right? This is a good thing. There's not a one of us who would think to ourselves that we didn't want an angel watching out over us, even though we could not see him. That we did not want any thought of or any relationship whatsoever with one of these spiritual beings that comes from heaven sent by God. And yet, to Mary, these angels mattered not the least bit. Why? Because Mary was looking for Christ. The message that jumps out so loudly and clearly to us from this is that there is no true comfort to be found without Christ. I began preaching this morning by talking about the various things that people do in order to search for contentment and peace, happiness and joy. And all of these things are illusory. Illusory means that they are like a mirage. You go out in a desert and you walk long enough and far enough and you, you get dry enough. You're parched with thirst. And all of a sudden your eyes begin to play you tricks. And you say, oh, yes, there's a lake right up there. And you get there and you find more sand. There's one over there and there and there. And you start running in various directions trying to find the satisfaction for your thirst. And every time you reach the spot where you thought the lake was, it disappears and it's farther in the distance. People search for contentment, for the removal of their unhappiness, for the satisfaction in many different lakes in the desert. And when they arrive, they find out that none of them have water. And so we see from this passage that even the angels cannot provide satisfaction. What can provide satisfaction for Mary? Who can provide satisfaction for Mary? There is only one, and that is Jesus Christ. Angels, wonderful. But without Christ, worthless. Wonderful, but without Christ, worthless. Now think of what our culture says about angels. We have an emphasis, for instance, on touched in, on the program Touched by an Angel, which is something I haven't watched a great deal of. But if, if you see any previews or anything about it, if you see the emphasis in our culture on angels, you will see that very often the emphasis on, is on angels. And there is a great big vacuum. There's a, a huge hole that is like a heavenly black hole. There's nothing there. What is missing? Christ is missing. Touched by an angel? Great. Without Christ, nothing. And so Mary, in her grief, can see angels that don't even by God's power, I don't, you know, why was she not afraid? Why does it, does it not, why is there even no notice that she recognized that they were angels? She must have somehow, you know, for us to have this account, Somehow she must have realized later or whatever that they were angels. But one would think if you saw an angel, you'd say, ho, 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 If it was a real angel, the angel would have to say, do not be afraid. And Mary just says, I'm looking for his body, and that's it. 
They've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. You and I must understand very clearly the message of this passage. The joy is found in the end of the passage. There is no satisfaction. There is no joy. There is no peace. There is no contentment. There is nothing found when the angels are found. The only way in which the angels are of any value whatsoever is as and if they point to Christ. Now, what does this say to us? You and I live in a culture where people have virtually everything, don't they? We are in a very affluent society. They have clothes, clothes on their back, and whole wardrobes, whole closets full of clothes. They have heat in the midst of this cold weather. They have cars so that they can even drive home for lunch from work if they wish to. And when they get home, they can pick from any number of all the cupboards that Jim's put in their house. Just kidding, Jim. Any number of cupboards. Any kind of food they want. If it's not in the cupboard, go to the store and get it. Health? Why, that's one of the biggest employers in our community. Health care. If you're sick... There's any one of a number of drugs, and not just one for everything, but a bunch of varieties of different ones in case this one doesn't suit the purpose. This one does virtually the same thing, but it's different. Every need filled. And in the midst of this, it is easy for those who know Christ to look at our neighbors and say they have everything. How could they ever be interested in Christ? And so we're not bold witnesses because we think... They're satisfied. Their needs are met. How will they ever see that they do not truly have the joy that is found in Christ? Well, I think we see here with regard to Mary the Magdalene what is so often so true among our neighbors, among perhaps our family members and our friends, is that the vacuum is there, the emptiness is there, They are missing the joy that is found in life through Christ. All of these things tend to disguise it. But nonetheless, many people come to that absolute conclusion nonetheless. I got all these things, yes, but you know what? They do not bring me happiness. You and I need to remember this as we consider and as we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything except for Christ is a mirage in a desert as far as satisfaction, joy, and peace goes. Only Christ is the spring of living water. Without Christ, there is no genuine joyful hope as well as there is no eternity. I would like to point you finally to the end of the passage which is the spine-tingling aspect of this story. There are several stories in Scripture which have this aspect to them. This is one of them, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus starts walking with the disciples and they have no idea who he is. That's another one of them. 
thinking he was the gardener. Now, this is a story that elevates the position of gardener. I'm glad to see that because I used to be a gardener. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. (laughs) Just imagine the shock in this woman. When she goes from the deepest sorrow of her life to the realization that the sorrow is gone, that Christ is present in front of her in the flesh, and she cries out to her, Rabboni! Now this is interesting, because I think we need to see some things from this. What does Rabboni mean? It means teacher, as, as it says in our passage, correct? Christ is so much more than a teacher, and yet Mary and the other disciples were used to thinking of him in many terms as a teacher. Christ is declaring himself, as he appears to Mary here, the risen and victorious Savior, Son of God, God himself, the Messiah through whom salvation is found. And the title that she uses for him is, although a very valuable title, a much lesser title than he owns. What does he say to her? Do not hold on to me. And you can imagine how she wrapped her arms around him. Some pictures, you know, I don't know if it's his feet or whatever she did. Just imagine the joy that, that was expressed in her clasping him. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, what do we need to see from this? I believe that we need to see from this. Christ is no longer, he's expressing this to Mary, and it's in comparison or in, in contrast to her calling him teacher. Christ is no longer as he was. He is now taking hold of the power which was his from eternity. I must go to my father and your father. Do not hold on to me. He is once again returning to his proper realm and dominion, which is heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty to judge both the quick and the dead. A powerful image here that shows us that Christ has accomplished it, and now this earthly situation is gone, and instead the heavenly situation is awaiting him. But does that mean I'm left behind, she says. She doesn't say it, but this is what she's thinking. He's alive, yes, but he's going, right? And he makes it very clear to her. I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What is the value of a risen Savior? The value of a risen Savior is that it is no longer Jesus speaking to his father, saying, my father, Instead, it is my father, your father. And because of this accomplished work, Mary could go from speaking to Christ as her teacher to loving and adoring him as her Lord and her God. This is a magnificent account. It's one that encourages us... 
and to see not only that there is no comfort found in anyone but Christ, but also that Christ's resurrection is the proof of his victory over the powers of sin, death, and the devil. How do we find contentment, joy, and peace? Well, they come from grasping something, such as Mary was grasping Christ, correct? But they also come from losing something, which is the sorrow. And only because Christ conquered sin and death and the devil and was able to say, my father, your father, my God, your God, only through that are we able to come to him and to cast aside all of the things which beget sorrow in our lives. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks and praise now and forever that we are able to approach you as our Father by trusting in Christ as the risen and victorious Savior. We pray that we would place our faith wholly in him for our salvation, that we would anticipate eternity with you. We give you thanks for your compassionate mercy demonstrated towards Mary. And we pray that you would pour out your compassionate mercy upon us as well, that we would find comfort from our sorrows, that we would find strength in our weakness, that we would find hope and joy in the midst of our despair, and that knowing that we have placed our faith in Christ, that we are trusting in one who has already defeated these sources of great grief, so that we might live with joy even in the midst of a world that is full of many sorrows. And we ask you to teach us these things, that we may trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.